Right now in fast markets on the clock for tomorrow's big CPI report. And if what we are hearing from the Fed and big business is right, inflation's not going a lot lower for potentially a long time. So what is the trade in a stubborn and sticky high price environment? Plus, batter up a playoff edition of the Trader Triple Play. We've got a costly cola, a chip maker getting semi-slimmed, and a nuclear deal that has investors kind of melting down. And later we're going off to the charts uh, to look at three names hitting new lows that are so bad they're, well, we'll fill in the blank. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the NASDAQ market site. A full desk in-house tonight. Tim Seymour, Bono and Ice, and Steve Grasso in a special appearance for the hour by the one and only chart master, Carter Worth. And as we count down to the September CPI report, we start with a big bet for a big move in the bond market. One options trader this morning making a million-dollar wager that the yield in the 10-year Treasury could fall to 2.9% by December. That is a move of 100 basis points in less than two months. Now, in normal times, that would be massive, but this would only be the second biggest bond move in recent months. Over the summer, keep in mind, the 10-year soared 150 basis points from August to September. That kind of made sense with all the Fed rate hikes. But the question here now is, what kind of signal would a steep drop in yields send to this market? What would that world look like? Would CPI still be high? Would we see a Fed pivot? Tim, what do you think? Well, yields plunging would certainly be a a growth scare beyond expectation, and it would be possibly a flight to quality. But the things that uh, we're we're experiencing now in terms of flight to quality and global sovereign debt is is that, if anything, um, the sovereigns are willing to let it run. And and in fact, higher interest rates are what the Fed wants. whether it's QT or whether it's not targeting the long end of the yield curve. And I think this is uh, many central banks around the world. This is something that I think we, we need to be thinking about. I, I would argue, and again, we had the Bank of England in there, again, buying gilts today. They, they, the market was pretty volatile in the morning. You were seeing yields move higher. They closed a bit lower. We know what they said yesterday. They're basically coming out of the market tomorrow. I worry uh, that that European yields can bring up our yields. I think rising rates around the world are not something that are one and done and a function of just central banks backing off. I know we've seen bad news be good news. And good news, obviously, at 2.9 on the 10-year would have major implications for stocks. I'm not expecting that. And what would the two-year be? So what, what would, how do you look through that backdrop? Right. What's the inversion going to look like? Is it going to be a growth scare? Because I think the market is going to rally substantially from the midterm elections on. Can you have both of those events happening? Or if rates really do drop, it's the reason why. And if it is a growth scare, are we dropping because things are really getting worse on Main Street, which is to say that stocks are going down and yields are going down? It's either that or a Fed pivot, which, uh, I mean, you know how I feel about that. But, like, that's the, that's the other path that leads us right. there. Which would, but what's the ex- which would mean that things right? have gotten so bad that they have needed to pivot. So it's going to be like oh. that, that hockey so stick now situation. now Fed pivot is bad because before Fed pivot was good. A Fed pivot but, where we, go, we are down 100 basis points by December is most certainly precipitated by something extremely bad. But not by the November 25 expiration, which is where this options trader that at least. And we're, we're having a larger conversation than around this trade. But, but yeah. um, to the extent that there's no Fed pivot between now and November. No way. Um, there's no Fed between now and the end of the first quarter pivot. And in fact, look, what we want is the rate of change or less, uh, less acceleration on the Fed gas on interest rates. That is a moment for the markets. Um, and that's a, mark, that's a moment that I think equities can rally on. But we still, I think Carter's point is, is dead on. I think what you're saying is, look, if we start to see rates diving, um, yeah. stocks should be diving too. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, we, the reason why we set up the show with this is because there is such a division 
decision on Wall Street as to where we are headed and under what circumstance. So under what circumstance would a 2.9% yield be by the end of this year? Would it be a good one? Would it be a bad one? And the fact that somebody put this bet on, Dan yesterday said that he thought the Fed would in fact pivot to some extent after this November meeting, that they would telegraph that they are going to stop and wait. So that would not, make perfect. It's not a crazy. That would make thing perfect sense because you don't want to be responsible for having. A, you know, I know we're going to say that they're not political, right? The Fed, but it's very difficult to not be political right before the midterm elections, <laughs> right? So if you're so so if you're not political, maybe they're not even trying to be political. But the point is, they could telegraph to Dan's point that that pace is going to decrease. It's a shock. You, the, the odds of that happening, I would say, are exceedingly low. Putting odds on anything is impossible. Is at 5% or something? But were we to drop quickly like that, it means that something is really wrong, and it means that stocks are materially lower, not higher. And, and, and remember where we were during COVID. So, so remember we got down, I think it was an intraday low of 36 pips on the 10-year, which is, right? is you know, I mean, but that was a catastrophic level uh, representing catastrophe. And, and I, I do, too. I, I think, again, flight to quality is one thing. Um, but I think the pressure that's been downward pressure on yields on bond markets for the last 10 years has not been about deflation, has not been about secular trends. It's been about central banks. Uh, and, and unless central banks and, and look, the juries still look, they need to prove with their actions more than their words that they're willing to hang in here. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, two point nine to me, first of all, isn't an extraordinary move. We talk all the time about the volatility in the bond market. These moves in yields have been all over the place. Um, that's you know, that's not. Yeah, to me, if we're talking low twos, then we've got a very different. Don't you feel like the market has overshot to either the downside or the upside in terms of reactions lately? I mean, to you know, underscore the volatility point, we've seen huge UK. giant moves, right? And so if we did hear of a Fed or sniff of a Fed pivot, I mean, I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a huge drop. Even if it seems precipitous by historic measures, in this day and age, it's not a precipitous drop. That's right. Or even to think this, we're talking about 2-9. We were at 2-9 August 22nd. Right. I mean, it's not like that's, right. you know, 22 ago. sessions ago. It's nothing. I don't want to act like we can't get back to 2-9, but I think there's like a lot of attention put on the break even of this options trade. And really, it's a directional trade. Right. Because we've had so much volatility, someone is putting on some tail risk, which the probability of which is very low. But if you get the direction right, the payout is extremely high. Mm-hmm. That's really what the trade is about. And it's, I mean, it's not outlandish to think that given the volatility that we've had, that we could see a move lower in rates. Certainly not to the tune of 2 point, I, mean, I guess I shouldn't say certainly. I have a hard time seeing 2.9% by December or November 25th. But if this, uh, this BOE thing continues and chaos ensues and you do start to see flight out of emerging markets, out of BOE, into the U.S. Treasuries, you will see rates lower and you probably, to Carter's point, will see stocks well, lower. What happens if it's just a result? Right. right. So I agree 100 percent what you just said. What happens if it's just as a reaction to every different commodity, uh, the inflation bubble being popped? Isn't that a case? When is that, that happening? I mean, I, you well, know, every, in what world? I don't know. Lumber, what world is, is all this stuff happening? We're lining a third up of its value. Like, if you look at the lumber chart, it's a third of its value. Yeah, if you look at crude, it's down 40% or 35%. So, so every commodity, you can list, list every one of them. They're all way off their highs. Well, I just don't I, think that'll translate. I, I think if you, look, if you look at the commodities that, that ultimately, I'm not saying lumber doesn't matter for all you lumber traders out there, but I, I, you know, I'm looking well, at oil, I'm looking at housing, right? So housing is But I'm looking at... 
like when I want to see what's going on with with commodities prices, I look at some of the commodities traders. Look at Glencore stock uh, and look at that chart. That's not a chart that's going going to the floor. And, and I guess, but back to 290 on the 10 year. Look, if we're going to 290 on the 10 year, um, go back to you know. August or go back to levels, the, the, the best asset class will be mega cap tech. And you'll want to be in the biggest companies in the world because they're giving you the most relative growth and they're giving you an environment where, again, um, lower yields, send valuations higher. You're going to go straight to the cream of the crop. Apple would be $170 stock. At, at, or, or, at or do you go to the long duration but smaller names that have gotten crushed? the growthier names in an environment in which 2.9% is the new is a new yield. I mean, the real question is, do you go after beta within tech? Right, There's the big right. generals, and, or do you go after the snowflakes and Etsy's mm-hmm. and things that are down 70, 80%? I think you barbell it. You probably do a little bit of the Apple and Microsoft, and you do some of the bombed out ones, too. Let's yeah. not forget about the multinationals. If rates get crushed that way, that the whole dollar denomination uh, exchange rate dynamic that we've seen and hit earnings to the tune of Six, I think it was six percent previous quarters. Lastly, it was like eight to ten percent. That's a material risk, that and that's material alpha that you can get without having to slide further out on the risk curve. You can be in a McDonald's or an Apple or somewhere much safer and still get a ten percent pop without having to take on additional risk. All right, our next test expects inflation to meaningfully retreat in the next six months. Mark Zandi is the chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. I know it's uh, it's very early where you are, so we do appreciate your time. Um, just getting to this notion that inflation will come down in six months meaningfully, what, what exactly does that mean? Because, you know, I, I read this stat today that I thought was fascinating, that even if you X out food, energy, and housing in the month of August, inflation was still up 6.4% year on year, which is still stubbornly high and big, even though you take out these big sort of lumpy giant drivers of inflation. And that seems shocking to me. Yeah, uh, well, uh, thanks, Melissa. Uh, you know, uh, meaningfully means uh, the CPI, the consumer price inflation, will go from something that's about now about a little over 8% year over year to something close to half that, uh, 4%. And all we need for that uh, to occur is for oil prices to stay roughly where they are. Supply chains continue to uh, iron the problems out and vehicle prices start to roll over. And uh, everything else sticks, stays the same, and we're, we're going to go, go from eight to four over the next six months. The real, the real hard part uh, is going to go from four back down to the Fed's target. And on CPI, the high end of that target is probably 2.5%. So that last 150 basis points, 1.5 percentage points, that's going to take a while because that goes to uh, the, the, the uh, inflation for services, which goes back to wages in the labor market. That has to cool off, and that's going to take some time. But the Going from eight to four, I think uh, we, we get that over the next uh, six months, just assuming, again, that oil prices don't go up. They, they stay roughly where they are. Hey, Mark and Tim, so you addressed where you know, the Fed is what they're really looking at in inflation levels. What the Fed has also said is that they want real rates. So let's take your, your core rate. Let's get it down to four. Can the Fed really be north of that? Can we have positive real rates? They've said that multiple times in, in the last couple months. Well, uh, uh, I, I think they're already positive. I mean, uh, I think when they talk about real rates, they talk about inflation expectations and that that they've already come in. Right. So, you know, go into the bond market, take a look at one year, five year forwards. That's uh, inflation a year from now in the subsequent five year period based on swaps, break on break evens. That's right on top of the Fed's target of two, two and a half percent. Compare that to the current funds rate target of over three. That's that's a that's that's a real yield. It's a positive real yield. And that's going to get even more positive here, obviously, when the Fed meets in 
couple of weeks and a few weeks and raises the, the funds rate another three quarters of a percentage point. So uh, we're already there. Uh, and, and that's going to slow growth. It is slowing growth, particularly job growth is starting to throttle back. And then the next step is to get wage growth moving uh, south. And, and I think that's likely by early next year. Mark, when you think about the unemployment rate rising, is there a, a rate at which you think the Fed would say, let's stop? Let's stop and, and see where we are at this point. Well, I think that what they're most focused on right now is uh, wage growth, because that that's critical to getting uh, broader service price inflation moderating and getting inflation back down to target. So if they start seeing wage growth uh, roll over, and, and it, it, the good news there is that wage growth is no longer accelerating. It feels like it's around 5%-ish, something like that. They need to get that down, uh, again, three, three and a half, four percent uh, percent. So if they start seeing that roll over, uh, which I which I would expect by early next year, you know, after they've got the funds rate of four and a half and four, three quarters percent, then then I think they stop and take uh, they say, hey, look, I'm, I'm going to stop here. I'm going to take a look around, see how things play out. And then if we get into the next summer uh, and things are uh, sticking to my script, then we're done. Uh, we've just hit the terminal rate and, you know, they'll keep the funds rate there into 2024. But if I'm wrong, uh, and mostly generally, uh, hopefully I'm not wrong, uh, and inflation remains more stubborn, then they'll step on the brakes again and then, you know, we'll go into recession. Mark, thank you. Appreciate yeah, it. Sure. Thank you. Mark Zandi of Moody's. All right. So tomorrow, big number out. Bad is bad. Sometimes. Right. <laughs> is bad good? I mean, what, what, what do you think? I think a lot of attention is paid to it, and obviously markets have this knee-jerk reaction. But at the end of the day, we know it's always elevated, at least of late. And is it a little more elevated, a little less elevated? I don't think it matters. Yeah, I think the market has absorbed a lot of, a lot of it at this point. It would have to be a real outlier number. To, to really start to move the market. Outlier hot or outlier low? Exactly. Either way? E either way. And I think if it's obviously a little bit cooler, it's going to give the, the ability for the markets to read into, is there going to be a pivot? Is there going to be a pause? What's that going to look like going to year end? I think people are still looking for reasons to buy this market. Yeah. I understand it. Um, I, I get it. Maybe dollars cost average. But I do think there still is a bias towards if we are modestly cooler, I do think it's taken as a bullish sign, whether or not it should be. But I do think that's the way the sentiment is kind of shaping up. Well, we're, we're, yeah, we're coming off of both sentiment and, you know, we hit a 52-week low today. I mean, markets are oversold, sentiment's oversold, so cooler is better. So I guess good news is actually good news, right? I mean, good, good, good news is less inflation. Yeah. That would be good by any measure. Right. Uh, and that's good news for the markets. But um, I... I, I it's not these markets aren't going to get away from you and the Fed's not going to get away from you. This is this is a bounce uh, on weaker. I agree with these guys. The, the risk is to the upside on that CPI number. That's something you're fading. Coming up, playoffs are underway. So we thought it'd be a great time for a trader triple play. Three big stock movers from today's session. Could they be a home run for your portfolio or should these should you bench these names? You got the details next. Plus partnership perks. Moderna signing after surging, excuse me, after inking a deal with a top pharma name, the new cancer vaccine deal that is sending this stock soaring. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a trader triple play. First up, Pepsi, the snack and beverage maker, raising its outlook for the year after beating sales estimates in its latest quarter. The company is saying it was able to raise prices on its products by 17 percent on average. The stock ending the day up more than 4 percent, its best day since April of 2020. I think Doritos 
like for like a, a regular like family size bag is like seven dollars. Seventy five dollars. Well, not quite seventy five dollars. At seventeen percent on average increase each quarter, it, it could be seventy five dollars yeah, at some point. There. And but less, that's, of course, that's less story. chips in the bag too. Right, no, exactly. No, Shrinkflation. Yeah. Yes. But this is the story of the winners here. On well, Wall this Street. is a story of profitability increases. Right. This is a story of higher prices for food companies usually yield the higher top line for sure. We even hear from a Walmart and the grocery sellers. But in Pepsi's case, greater profitability. They're pushing prices on. They're also seeing some relief in, in actually some of the grains and some of the uh, the input prices are actually coming down a little bit. And they're able to hold prices here. It says that the consumer has been very resilient. We've seen that so far. And when the consumer has money, and I realize a $75 bag of Doritos is, is not really a test, um, but and we're joking, but I, I think as you get into certain other types of food spending, it does become an issue. Yeah. I mean, in and of itself, as an investment from here, it's sort of a pair of twos. It's dull. It's probably on the expensive side. But here's the thing. It's also unchanged for the past 12 months. Now, that makes it a lot better than the market. But is it really something to commit new capital to? I would say no. Yeah, and if you look at the yield, the yield is 2.7%, but it's uh, to, to uh, Carter's point, it's actually down 2.5% year to date. So even though flat 52 weeks. So this is why Guy makes a great point of doing this. You don't buy for a dividend because it could be gone in one day. So you're not buying it for that. I'm not going to knock it for being dull or a pair of twos necessarily. I mean, I, like, it's, a, it's probably a place where you can park money. It's a low beta play. I will say, you know, uh, I'm no dietitian, but cheap carbs and high fructose corn syrup. I mean, this is the cheapest. You sound of, like one boy. This, this, this is the cheapest of cheapest. This is the cheapest of cheap. And, uh, you know, if this is where we're, and this is the stuff that you're buying at your local bodega or your corner store, if this is where we are able to hold pricing, I don't think that bodes well for the consumer at all in the least. Where do you trade down from Doritos, Cheez-Its, and Pepsi? Store brand. Okay. Doritos, Cheez-Its, and, and Pepsi. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. marginal. But, but, marginal but cost I, savings. I take your point Burritos? in that if you're trying to fill your stomach or you're trying to fill your family's stomach, you might go here instead Absolutely. of buying real corn. Can we do a would you rather Fritos versus Doritos? Oh, Maybe another Doritos show. Doritos hands down. Why would that Fritos. even be a would you rather? Why would we waste our time would you rather in that? Um, anyway, next up, Cameco moving into the nuclear space. The stock tumbling 13% after saying it was buying a stake in a nuclear power company, Westinghouse, with Brookfield Renewable, the deal worth $8 billion. Um, Tim, why, why the issues with the deal? Well, the deal is, is this is a company that for the first time in a long time has been free cash flow positive. And, and the tailwinds, we've talked about them often on the show around uranium and uranium oxide and, and, and why this is a trade that I think you're still early on. But um, I want to see this company continue to be free cash flow generative. I want to see, you know, their Cigar Lake mine is finally crushing. They've, they've brought new production online. They have long-term contracts. I don't need to see them get into this, even though the long-term rationale for this, this story, I get it. Um, it's not what people wanted to see. All right. there, there is a beta play in this as well. Tim, Tim talks about that one, NextGen, NXE. I think it's a great spot to be in both of these names. I went a little bit down the food chain. Tim's stock is much bigger on a market cap basis. This is a lot smaller. But if you start to see it turn around like I think you will, this one will react as well. How do these uh, names look, Carter? Well, this one in particular, obviously, after today, looks a little worse. But here's the thing. It traded 47 million shares, which is almost 12% of the float. So just as Tim was saying, the market didn't like it. People didn't like it. It did find trend. It went right to the trend line that's been in effect for the last two years. I think it's probably going to reset and stays here, but that doesn't make it a buy. 
Yeah, I mean, I, if I remember correctly, I think they're supposed to be issuing shares. Uh, part of the stock shell is around here. So pretty much people price the stock where this new issue is going to be. But if you look at like the cash that they've been spending on investment activities, that's about 475, 500 million uh, over the last 12 months. I think, you know, I think Tim mentioned this earlier, but you're, you're calling to question, how are they using cash? And are they able to, does their cash flow uh, substantially uh, stabilize with the added debt load? I mean, that's really the question here. All right, let's get to Intel here. The chipmaker reportedly planning to cut thousands of jobs as PC demand continues to slump. About 20% of the staff could be laid off as early as this month. The company set to report earnings in two weeks. Meantime, Applied Materials updating its guidance for the current quarter, saying the latest chip export restrictions could hit revenues by $400 million. We just talked about this last night in terms of the impact. And we're finally hearing companies um, elaborate on that impact. Tim, what do you make of these moves? Well, so much for this being defensive because of the valuation, and it wasn't a high multiple uh, chip stock. And, and if you think about where Intel needs to go here, it, it's not necessarily about cutting corners and, and pinching pennies. It's really about spending money on CapEx. I hate the news. It speaks to demand. Uh, it speaks to a sense that we're going to see uh, more markdowns in the third quarter from what we heard from AMD. Carter. I mean, the shocking thing is we're coming up on the 22 anniversary of its peak. It peaked 22 in, years in, ago? in September mm. of 2000. And it's never oh. gotten anywhere near that. I mean, it's, it's a it's a tough one. It is. It is. I think it's a little bit so bad it's good here, but it's a small speculative bet. A little bit of so bad it's good. I mean, we bit. went in the semiconductors. We went from drought to now there's going to be surplus, uh-huh. and now there's no demand. So I, I agree with I agree with Carter. At eventually, one of these names has to have put a floor in. But the problem is, this is the last thing you go towards when you're heading toward a recession. So this is the headwind that the market is facing right now. And it was already in a declining state way before everyone has realized, wow, there's no more demand for chips. Right. Well, we were just talking to an analyst last night on Fast, and he was saying that that the sector still needs estimates to come down. And that's just for the macro supply chain issues, not even counting the impact of the chip export restrictions. That's a whole other layer of estimates that need to still come down on this group. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the lone tailwind is the onshoring narrative. But to Steve's point, they've missed that whole boom-bust cycle. The tailwinds of economic expansion, the COVID lockdown, demand for PC and chips, they've, they've missed that whole thing. They got that completely upside down. So I think this is going to be a long turnaround story. And them cutting, like you said, marginally cutting costs is not the path to profitability here. So really quick, I asking Carter, though, so you got to be quick. Um, we just broke through <laughs> on semis through the long-term 200-week average. What does That's that mean right. to you? I mean, here's the thing. If we know that the MSAI, all country world, is, is back to its COVID high, the S&P would need another 5% to get there. Semis still have to drop 15, 16% yeah. just to match what the other indices have done. Do you wow. know we went from Doritos to Intel? Chips to chips. There you go. Nice. All right. We got a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Biotech bond. Shares of Moderna jumping on a new cancer deal. The news that has investors piling in. Plus, credit check, consumer spending in focus. And our next guest says there's a major shift underway. The details ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Moderna topping the tape today after announcing a partnership with Merck to develop a vaccine for high-risk melanoma patients. Shares of the drug maker jumping as much as 17% on the news before closing out the day, up more than 8%. Merck will pay Moderna $250 million for the cooperative agreement, which will study Moderna's mRNA technology alongside Merck's already FDA-approved cancer treatment. Also fueling Moderna's gains today, the FDA, FDA authorized its Omicron booster for kids as young as six years old. How does this chart look, Carter? Well, for starters, intraday, Mm -hmm. if you really have something good, you don't close on the low. You stick your landing, just like a good gymnast, right? So it wobbled. It closed on the low. Uh, This is a stock that we we might have some charts here. All this did was rally right to the downtrend line, in effect, since it's high. Mm. $500 stock, here it's sitting at at $130. Uh, It's just terrible. Tim? Well, Moderna, if you just look at the balance sheet of the company and that they have 20, almost 5% of the, the market cap in cash uh, and the free cash flow generation here, I, I, I like the story. I, I think um, we're always worried about where they're going to plow their next, you know, their, their next growth story and the risk of throwing capital out the window. This story, though, uh, is a great story. And Merck, to me, is better for it as well. Is this one of these things where you have good story, good company, bad stock. And when you look at the, the Car- Carter's it? chart, yeah, I think it is okay. for me. So I don't know if you're asking other people or you're just rhetorical. Rhetorical. Sort of, okay. but I could, I could have been swayed. I could have been swayed. Okay. Yeah. Right. When, when, you look at, when you look at the stock, it's down 50% year to date. Even after this pop today, being up 8%, it's still down 7% for the month. So still negative headwinds. The bigger names, the Mercs of the world is where I'd rather be if you're going to invest in here. So, yes, it was sort of a would you rather wrapped into something else. Doesn't this also mean that they they know something about the the next phase of this cancer drug? I mean, that this cooperation, these companies like Merck would not be re-upping here if they didn't feel that there was a lot of good news in the pipeline. Yeah. And if you look at Moderna, I mean, Steve, you spoke to the stock action, which makes you wonder, is it so bad that it's good? Because if you really look at their revenue stream, most of it is tethered to vaccines of respiratory nature. So to see them branching out and being constructive and thoughtful and strategic in terms of what their next landing spot is and partnering with a behemoth like Merck, to me, is all positive signal. Now, Carter can tell you more about the technicals than I can. But you like the story. But but I do like the story. I do like the story. Because at some point, I mean, this COVID or some flu variant or vaccine, something's got to give. You've got to find that next frontier. And melanoma, I can't really Mm. think of a much better one. And uh, you won't want to miss Joe Kernan's interview with the CEO of Moderna and next week's virtual Disruptor 50 Summit. Use a QR code on your screen to register. Coming up, charge it or don't. We're jumping into the consumer and how they are spending their money. The big trend changes our next guest sees in the data. Plus, lucid dreaming is hard to do, but that didn't stop them. The EV maker updating investors on production targets and options traders are revved up on this news. That is straight ahead when Fast Money returns. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money Podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this.
Welcome back to Fast Money. A quick check on today's close. The major indices giving up early gains to close in the red. The Dow losing a 215-point gain to fall 28 points at the close. The S&P and Nasdaq posting their six negative sessions in a row. A few names to highlight here. Microsoft touching its lowest level since January of 2021, now down over 32% this year. Shares of Apple dropping today. The company reportedly planning to withhold benefits to employees at its unionized store. Apple's down more than 15% over the past a month. And on an upbeat note, the cruise lines all surging today. Norwegian, Royal Caribbean, Carnival, all jumping more than 10%. They were the three best performing names in the S&P 500 today. Meantime, banks' earnings uh, kicking off Friday with credit card issuers gearing up to give their latest read on the consumer in the coming weeks. Joining us with more on what to expect from the sector is David George, senior U.S. banking analyst at Baird. David, great to have you with us. Hey, good afternoon, Melissa. Um, so you say that the consumer is good, and certainly we've heard that from Jamie Dimon to Brian Moynihan. We, we've heard it time and time again. At the same time, we're also hearing sort of these little anecdotes, um, you know, things like mortgage loans are harder to get, for instance, that they're tightening credit, uh, making it more difficult for consumers to access that credit. Um, and, and also Macy's, they had detected some bad consumer credit data and that they cut down their inventory and they were actually saved um, by that. And so we're, how do you sort of model out how what the Fed is going to do, what's going to happen with the economy and unemployment and when that will hit, if at all, these credit card uh, stocks? Yeah, that, well, that, uh, it's, a, it's a, lot, a lot to unpack there. But, but we're going through, uh, Melissa, from my perspective at least, at an adjustment period and a transition period as it relates to the consumer and how they're spending. And if you go back to the pandemic in the beginning of 2020, consumer spending really was centered around things. And obviously, we had $6 trillion in stimulus, and that found its way into consumers' pockets. And they spent them on, on various consumer discretionary items. Now that the economy has opened up again, we're starting to see that shift into uh, more experiences rather than things. And that really is benefiting a number of the card companies like American Express, American Express given their leverage to travel. And we expect credit card outstandings to be up over 16% here uh, in the third quarter of 2022. Obviously, there's an inflationary tailwind, but nonetheless, we think the consumer by and large is in pretty good shape. Has there been pull forward of those experiences, David? I mean, I feel like that narrative of uh, shifting from things to experiences was really the narrative that had started to take place in the spring and, and summer. And now we're at this point where people are back to school, people are back to the office. They may have gone on their big giant vacation that they didn't take for two years already over the summer. And now, you know, business travelers are probably out there again. But when is the next big family vacation going to take place at this point? Yeah, I think that's right. There, there's absolutely some pull forward. So I think it's fair, Melissa, to as assume that that activity is going to moderate a bit and probably something more in the mid to high single digit area as, as we kind of go through the balance of, of this year and into 2023. But that's still, by historical standards, a pretty robust, a pretty robust number. And again, keep in mind, and this is obviously a backward looking indicator, but we're at 75 year lows in claims. We've got three and a half percent unemployment uh, and a pretty nice um if you look at consumer checking account balances, they are still above pre-pandemic levels. You're starting to see that draw from the peak, but still above uh, the, the, the prior peak uh, before the pandemic. What does the model look like, David, though, when unemployment is at 5% and interest rates are much higher than they are here and the rate that you're paying on your credit card is much higher, shockingly, than where it is now because it's pretty high yeah. as it stands? 
Yeah, sure. As you can imagine, there's a, a fairly linear relationship between credit card losses and unemployment. And, and traditionally, and keep in mind, for the last 15 years, we have stress tested these companies to depressionary levels. But to give you a sense, if, if unemployment were to go to five, charge-offs would go from, say, 175 basis points in card to maybe two and a quarter. We would characterize normal to be in that 275 to 3% area. And we think that the card companies could, could withstand significantly higher losses, even up to eight to 10% unemployment without having a major earnings issue or a, or a net income uh, loss in a particular quarter. So, David, when you look at this and you see how strong the consumer is, it just seems that there was so much money thrown at the consumer during the pandemic with all, all the ease of free mm-hmm. checks in the mail and everything else that we had to do. Is there just an elongated timeline duration to how much weaker that consumer will get? It's going to take a lot longer to actually get to that rubber meets the road. Well, to, to your to your question, it's really a function of this adjustment and normalization period. We really need to go back to 2019, um, Steve, to kind of look at what's really the most normal. And that's going to take some time. And it may be the end of 2023 before we find that equilibrium. But the, but the bottom line is the consumer is in pretty good shape and the stocks are discounting a very dire consumer credit uh, situation, which is why we think there's a, a trade opportunity in these names. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, you should have a, a screaming buy in all of them if you think eight to 10, if, the, if these stocks can weather up to eight to 10% employment, we're nowhere near that. And, and we may not get to that in this cycle per se, um, then, then all, many of them are buys. David? Yes, sorry about that. You you cut out for a moment. Yeah, that, oh. yeah. We, we're very we're, we're very constructive on on the stocks, and and this this market for the last couple of years has been very, what I would call narrative driven. And six six eight months ago, when everyone loved financials, they were mispriced, and and now we think that we were in the opposite situation. And the narrative is negative, but but the prices we think more than discount that here. David, great to get your thoughts. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. David George at Baird, who likes these stocks? Do they well, scare you? I, I, I like them. I just want to point out that I, I think we haven't even begun to see uh, loan pricing and, and marks be hung on these banks. And I think this is a big deal. I think a lot of the investment banking activity and I think a lot of the deals that were able to, to get a lot of these loan deals off are things I, I worry about. Um, so I, I just think this is these banks are, are priced for something much worse than what we have. If we have a recession and we talk about what are priced into equities, banks are front and center. Ninety five percent we've priced in recession. We haven't priced in Credit. But there's wisdom in price. So the question is, is the market wrong, right? The collective wisdom of right. all the people who are buying and selling banks, or is the market right? And valuation for banks is one of the hardest things. I mean, let's take J.P. Morgan, which is 1.2 book. Wells and, and City are trading at one book. Well, J.P. Morgan maybe gets to one. That's a 20% decline. Here's the thing that really, I think, the BKX index right now is trading at the same exact price it was in 1998. That's 24 years of unch. That's adjusted yeah, for inflation. You've just cut yourself down by 70 percent. Right. But you've got you had 90 percent dilution in Citibank. Of course. And, and yeah. you wipe Merrill Lynch off the map. And AIG and all I, this stuff. I, right? I hear you. And I would just point out that since Jan of 2018, the XLF is flat. 
So you've done zero. And you're down, you know, what, what David pointed out is it's down 30% in the last six months. So you're coming into this earnings period with a lot of negative news. But again, yes, you've, you've done nothing in financials. There's no argument that Cinnamon is definitely negative on these, on these names. And he mentioned loan growth. And he pointed out two names in his report. American Express, which is lever, lever to travel. I can get behind that narrative. But Capital One also has significant loan growth. And I think that tells a very different story about a lower quality consumer that has access to Capital One. And what are you doing with those loans? You're packaging them up and you're selling them in CLOs. And when you oh, and, so you're and, going and, to the and, other and, side and, of this and thinking the danger yes, and that well, lurks. Right, so, well, you see what's going on in London right now. And what I'm saying is when you we, we open this show talking about nothing but the volatility in sovereign markets. And so I'm just making a, a, a differential between an American Express, which is a much higher credit quality consumer versus a Capital One. And I think the loan growth on those two shouldn't be treated the same. Coming up, options with a little electricity. Shares of Lucid jumping today, but are there more gains to come? What options traders are betting is in store for the luxury EV maker. And throughout Hispanic Heritage Month, we are celebrating our teammates and contributors. Here's one of our CNBC contributors. I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. Then I went to college in the Midwest. It opened my eyes to a world of possibility to pursue the American dream. Yet hurdles exist for many. But why is America such an amazing place? Hundreds of cultures, the most dynamic economy in the world. And oh, by the way, Hispanic success is American success. Soon to be 100 million people, trillions in GDP, digital, entrepreneurial, productive. Our heritage is part of the American story. I'm proud to be Puerto Rican, lucky to be an American. Welcome back to Fast Money. EV maker Lucid Motors jumping today after announcing it's on track to hit lower 2022 production targets. Lucid's cut its uh, production estimates twice this year due to supply chain issues and trouble sourcing the basics like glass and carpet. But options traders are betting this announcement could drive more gains ahead. Dennis David of Millbank Dartmoor Portsmouth joins us with the action. Hey, Dennis. Hi, Melissa. Yeah, the trade that really caught my eye today in the options market was uh, investors came in and bought 45000 of the 13 half calls expiring in two days that's a that's a sizable trade um in this in a stock like lucid uh you know options volumes up almost 100 percent over over a 10-day moving average the trade requires a six percent rally in the stock to break even keep in mind that this stock has moved five or six percent at least once every day for the last three weeks so you know the the thing about this trade it's 1.3 million dollars of premium that controls close to $60 million worth of stock. So that's one of those leverage trades that the first place I look is the short interest. Um, the short interest in this stock is 22%. Uh, my old days as a running a trading desk, I don't know if I necessarily buy these calls, but I sure wouldn't want to be short them. Yeah, uh, Bono, what do you think of this one? Short squeeze. I mean, there's really no reason to go out and spend any premium for a two-day option. Uh, it would, I just think the trend is in the wrong direction altogether. But that 22, 25% short interest is a real reason, if you're short, to be covering something up so that you, uh, you know, aren't left naked on a, on a rip to the upside. I feel like Carter has something pithy to say about this one. Carter? Well, I mean, anyone who's doing that with that short a time frame either knows something or they think they know something because it's just outright speculation and nothing more. Nice use of pithy, by the way. Right. It's a good yeah, word, especially with Carter. Time. <laughs> um, Dennis, thank you. Dennis David for more Options Action. Tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up so bad, it's what? Fill in the blank. 
Chartmaster is here and he's got a basket of names that are down in the dumps, but are they heading higher or lower? He will tell us next. Welcome back. Here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is talking with the CEO of Macy's. Catch the full exclusive interview top of the hour on Mad Money. So we can't have the chart master on set for a full hour without having him take a look at some charts for us, obviously. So we came up with a new spin on an old favorite. We're going to play so bad it's fill in the blank. Now, usually we are looking for charts that are so bad they're good, but that's not always the case. So let's take a look at some names. And Carter, you're going to start off with Verizon. It does look bad. It does look bad. Uh, choose your own adventure here. So what we've got is a 10-year chart. And just the thing that catches my eye is how far below trend, if you measure trend, as I do with the 150-day moving average. And so what I'm thinking here is that this is so bad that it's good play for some sort of bounce. Hmm. Tim, I feel like you were... Uh... I don't own Verizon. Uh, I have owned AT&T. I do think people that have been looking at yield in these stocks, you, you should look at total return. It's not been so good. Um, I think the environment in the wireless world has become less predatory. I think their core business is, is aligned. I think they've shipped off some awful media assets. Um, I think it's good. All right. Um, let's move on. Speaking of wireless, American Tower, Carter. Well, I'm going to put this in the so bad it's good camp as well. What we've got here is a stock that's gone all the way back to its COVID low and then some. And my thinking is we've got to give this a green arrow to annotate the one that's already there. That here, too, it's not about whether it's cheap or expensive. It's just that even in downtrends, you get counter trend moves. You're due for some sort of bounce. Yeah, I think that's pretty impressive when you go back to that COVID low and you look at how the stock actually reacted to it. So in a world where all of us know nothing, but collectively, individually, we know nothing and collectively we are the market. So you go to the charts. That's why Speak charts yourself, are so man, important. I'm not gonna, <laughs> in, 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 well, you alone cannot decide where the market was going is what I, what I meant to okay. say, right? So we individually can't push a market up and down. But when you see a chart like this that stops on a dime, I think it's worth a, worth a head nod. All right, um, Scott's Miracle Grow. Will it see green, Carter? Ooh, well, how about this one? I mean, we got to draw some lines here. Talk about well formed, the epic top, and going back to a 10 year trend crashing through. Was this all because of marijuana stocks? Who knows? But either way, down 85%, I think you got to give it the green arrow. Play for a bounce. Play for us another one. So bad it's good. So bad it's good? No. Um, I, I just quickly comment on their Hawthorne business and cannabis is separate. I, I mean, I, I've listened to the CEO speak from Scott's over the last uh, couple months. They were more offsides in their inventory ordering, and the cash levels there are things that at least you should pay attention to and be worried about. All right, and here's the last one. Sink your teeth into this last pick, mm. Carter. So as opposed to something that was strong and has come down and down and down, that's not what this is. This is something that is just unrelenting unrelenting. That's not so bad it's good. That's just so bad it's bad. Stay away. Don't do it. Resist any temptation to buy it. And also, I've never had one. I wouldn't need it either. <laughs> um, we have to go to our resident dietitian on this one. <laughs> At your service. So, I mean, I think the trends in terms of like alternative meats have definitely changed. The competition, the competitive backdrop has definitely changed. The partnerships that they've tried to, to tried to insert in the fast food, um, predominantly McDonald's, et cetera, really haven't really caught on. I just, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with Carter here. So bad, it's worse. So bad, it's, it's bad. Uh, 
to. Uh, this used this to be is, a darling. Can this, you imagine the day when we were like, everybody's going to want plant meat? <laughs> I mean, not a darling here and for a long time is painful. I was going to say, this is one of these vindication stocks that, that to me is, is a function of it never deserved the multiple. Uh, there's always plenty of competition. And the dynamics here for uh, this environment, for this stock, I think it goes lower. All right. Up next, final trades. For the final trade, let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. I think the rotation back into consumer staples is alive and well. Kimberly Clark, which got destroyed on a terrible guide, difficult commodity costs. And again, I think a lot of that gets better for them relative to the last quarter. Can be. Bonwin Eisen. I think 290 is a pipe dream before December. I'd be fading that option trade earlier. Car- it's, first of all, it's so nice to have Carter Braxenworth on the desk. Awesome. Nice he does, he not here. only brings a little bit of class, he brings this giant hardware. keyboard yeah, I have this. with him. <laughs> He's got a laptop and a giant I keyboard. I have all sorts of gear. <laughs> anyway, final trade. Look, the market four months later is only down 1.8% from where it was in June. We're not oversold. Sell. Don't be embarrassed with your keyboard. Mm. Yeah, yeah, by the way, I feel the same way. I struggle to find a final trade here. So this is take that with a grain of salt. I think the market goes probably 5 to 7% lower before we do that rip after the midterm election. Starbucks final trade, just based on technicals. Thanks for watching Fast. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Money. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.